0: Welcome to the GW Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, leadership, and a lot more here, and we do the show from the Foggy Bottom campus in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the Business of Sports program at GW. My producer is Henry Levy. Ken Rosenthal is an outstanding reporter and writer, and he has been for close to 30 years. In my judgment, he's the finest journalist covering baseball today. Many, many followers of Major League Baseball turn to Ken for the latest news, as attested by his 974,000 followers on Twitter. And millions more watch Ken on TV, he's the guy wearing the bow tie that you see seated next to the dugout for Fox Sports at the World Series and All-Star Games. Ken stopped by the GW campus recently for a conversation about the present and future of Major League Baseball. I co-moderated the discussion with one of our most impressive students, Ryan Delaney, president of the Sports Business Association. Here's an excerpt from that chat, starting with a reference to a memorable post-game interview at the 2017 World Series. It ended with Kenny holding the microphone as Houston Astros star Carlos Correa proposed to his girlfriend. I have a couple of questions. Is there anything you'd like to add to that video? For instance, did you get invited to that wedding? I don't believe that wedding
1: has taken place yet, but Ryan just asked me if I knew about it, if I knew this was coming, and the answer is yes. Yes. And it's a great story. After game five of that World Series 2017, it was one of the most memorable games ever played. It was a crazy game. It was that Alex Bregman interview. That was the game. Carlos Correa calls to me in the clubhouse. It's very late. I mean, the game went forever. It's after midnight Eastern. And he says, Kenny, I need to talk to you. Now, usually <laughs> when a player says that to me in that tone, it's not going to end well. So I didn't know what he wanted. And then he had to go do some formal interviews, press conferences. So I had to wait for him. And when he came back, he said, Hey, listen, this is what I want to do. I want you to be the one to interview me. And I need—I want to make this happen. He said, yeah, I want to make this happen. Can you? Will you do it? And at first I was thinking, this is the weirdest thing I've ever been asked to do. It. It's very unusual. And then I started thinking, well, how... Would this happen? How would we work it out with Fox? But we, long story short, did figure it out. We had it all planned how it would work that night. And they had to win. That was the problem. If they didn't win, it wasn't going to happen. He still would have got engaged. But so they lost the next night, set up a game seven. And I remember saying to him, Carlos is a really good guy. I said, hey, are you sure she's going to say yes? And he went like... (laughs) (laughs) So that's how it happened. But it was planned. I actually wrote about it that night. And I don't want to say that's what I got into the business for. That is hardly what I got into the business for. But that was a pretty cool thing.
0: The thing I appreciate in watching this for like the seventh time because it's so cool is how authentic you are in that scene. I mean, that is a very natural kind of approach that you take and and it it causes me to wonder a little bit about this transition that you've made from being a traditional print journalist and having all of the skills that have brought you to the top of that profession and the transition to being on national TV standing on the field. What, What are the skill sets from journalism that were helpful to you in TV and what were the skills that you had to develop?
1: Well, it's not easy. And I had some ups and downs with it, for sure. And at one point, Fox let me go, temporarily. It lasted about a month. And the reason they let me go was because I was not what Mark just said. I was not coming off authentic. I would say probably I was robotic. And there were some reasons for that, not worth getting into. But you do have to learn, and it's very difficult, in my opinion, to be yourself on television and to act normally in that weird kind of, Circumstance that you're in. Kevin Burkhardt, who is the host of our pregame and postgame show, maybe the best I've ever seen. The way he is on TV is exactly the way he is in real life, and a great guy both ways. So it took time to learn how to talk at a certain pace, and I still at times will go too fast. I know, and it took time to learn how to phrase questions in a television sense better than or differently than you do in a print sense because you're looking for different things. Sometimes people will tweet at me or say to me, man, that was a stupid question. It might be a stupid question. I'm looking for the answer. I don't care about the question. I'm not looking for the Pulitzer Prize here. I'm looking to get a good answer from a player on certain things that might have occurred. So that took time. Actually, that's ongoing. It never stops. And then just being able to control your nerves in certain circumstances. When you're out there, before a World Series game, we do this, this is the most difficult thing I do, and I've talked with the guy I work with about this, Tom Paducci, he's the other reporter on Fox for the playoffs. And we both agree this is the most difficult thing we both do. Seconds before the game starts, Joe Buck up in the booth and John Smoltz will talk about the game, and then they'll say, now let's go down to the guys in the field and we'll get their quick thoughts and one of us will go first, one of us will go after that. The players are on the field. They're It's game time, the crowd is roaring. So one thing you have to do is not shout, because the microphone will get you fine, but you can't help but almost raise your voice. And the other thing is these things are timed. Tom and I, we basically memorize what we have and we go from there, but it's terrifying because if you lose your train of thought, there's no going back. And this year, In the NLCS, there was a game where we were late, and I'm standing there, Now, luckily I've got my back to the mound, but the brewer's pitcher apparently was looking at me like, hey, (laughs) let's go, and I have no choice, and I have what I have, and I'm going to say what I'm going to say, so that is really difficult, but overall, a lot of the same skills do translate, and the difference is it's entertainment, and you have to project, and you just can't
2: I have no personality, which is what I thought I'd get away with at the start. <laughs> didn't, didn't work out so well. I'm interested in hearing how you decide, how you phrase questions. Obviously, with guys like Carlos Correa, we know that you have a relationship with them, it's a little more friendly. But how do you go about it when a guy just came off a bad game, or he committed an error that maybe blew the game for his team? Do you switch it up, how you say it, do you say it more lightly?
1: Well, we only interview the winners. Which is a pet peeve of mine because I think we should do both. And it's a little different, obviously, winners, losers. But there are ways to ask questions. And in print, I ask questions of losing players all the time. It's just something you get accustomed to. You try to be respectful, understand that a difficult moment. And at the same time, most of these guys now, they come up, they've grown up in an age of media. The younger players have been interviewed from the time they were 16, 17 years old. It's not unfamiliar territory to them. And the blessing of being on TV, one of them, is they all know who I am because they see me on TV. So it's not uncomfortable for them. It's not like I'm some guy coming out of nowhere. So that helps. But phrasing the questions is actually the most important part of those post-game interviews. And sometimes it's really hard to do well. Because sometimes you have to ask,
2: and the,
1: we get ripped for this all the time when you ask a guy how he feels, but sometimes that's the question. Hey, man, you just hit the game-winning home run in Game Three of the World Series. What's going through your mind? And often that will get the best answer. And it's, I guess, a stupid question. It goes.
0: So a couple of more questions about kind of the craft of, of doing a World Series the way you do it. So you're sitting in, I guess, next to the dugout for nine innings. It depends on the stadium, but I'm in. Photography pit
1: close by the dugout, for sure.
0: So what are you hearing and learning not much. from that vantage point that, that you know, I'm sitting on my couch in Baltimore, I'm not probably going to know?
1: I'm maybe seeing things that are happening on the field um, or in the dugout. But frankly, the cameras, we have, I don't know, 20, 30 cameras. They're not missing anything. And honestly, Tom Verducci is much better at game analysis. In fact, he works as an analyst on many broadcasts. He did a couple of World Series as the guy in the booth. He picks up things in the game Mark, that I'll never see. Well, I'll, for example, not on my best day, I'll well,
0: see. What do you mean by that?
1: Strategic stuff. Um, some A call. He may know the rule better than me. Mm-hmm. My strength is more reporting on players, trades, that kind of thing. Stories, background stories. But he is really good at zeroing in on the game. And he does it in my opinion, better than anybody I've ever seen from our standpoint. So down there, I don't know that there's great journalistic value, but it's the way television broadcasts are done. And there's with TV, it's a show. It's an illusion and all that stuff. So that's why. Could I do the same reporting from my hotel room? Probably. But there are some times I do pick up things. Sometimes. But it's pretty
2: rare. In the video there were a couple instances where there were almost a couple uh, curse words slipped in. What do you do in a situation where a player or a manager drops something inappropriate? Well, it's not my problem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they, we're on delay. It's a 7 second delay I believe. So, you saw Greg being it out. And they're, they're on it. Um, are, I'm sure we have people sitting in a truck somewhere who just are paying attention to that. And I can't recall a time where I've had a circumstance where a guy was cursing to the point or being ridiculous to the point where it was not a good interview. I had to get out of it. So that's never happened. Again, you want to be the winning players. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's inevitable. We're going to have to ask some fanboy questions here tonight. So that's fine. I mean, you work in, in, for a company and, and an event where your colleagues are a David Ortiz, and John Smoltz. That's, that's unusual, I would say. Yeah, it's unusual. Tell us about the experience of working with these people as colleagues. Well, Smoltz is the one I work most
1: closely with because we're on the games together. And we're on the games not just in the postseason, but during the season as well. And I also work with John at MLB Network. So I'm friendly with John, pretty good friends, I would say, and... Yeah, he's somebody I covered. And covered in some of his biggest moments, so that's kind of different. But he is a colleague, it's just somebody I work with. Now, A-Rod and Ortiz, yes, I'm working with them in the postseason, I will never see them. Mm. They're in the studio or in a separate set, and I may see them if I go into their truck before a game, but I don't usually do that, so it's not as if we're running around together and going out or anything like that. And there's sometimes a dinner, like one dinner before the World Series starts where we all get together, but even that doesn't always take place.
0: Who, who are the, the ex-players working as broadcasters who you have a lot of respect for? Smoltz, for sure. Mark DeRosa
1: on MLB Network. David Cohn. Ron Darling, the best. Ron Darling. Why? He's so insightful. He's also a great guy. He's, a, he's just a fine, fine person.
2: And I can name a number of others as well, but those, I guess those would be the names. So at this point in your career, working with guys like that and obviously talking to superstars on the field is routine, but how did you settle your nerves when you were first starting out?
1: Well, I, Mark knows this. Mark and I worked together at the Baltimore Sun for many years, and Mark taught me a lot. And when you do the job, this idea of being blown away by a star, or it doesn't it doesn't last very long if it lasts at all if it's there if it's there at all and if you put me in a music venue with people I haven't covered but I admire that's different and I would be whoa but these are the people I work with I, I'm I'm around them every day like any other group of people some of them are cool some of them are not cool but. It never even enters the equation. The other thing I get asked along the same lines is, okay, what's your favorite team now? <laughs> Growing up, it was the Mets, but you lose that almost right away, and I don't root for
0: anything like that. So we're in the business school, and I think that we ought to talk a little bit about the business of baseball. Uh, let's begin by addressing baseball's aging demographic. People who are, for the most part, the most avid fans of baseball are old people, almost yes. our age. Almost. As compared to like the NBA where, I mean, I would say in my sport media class I asked for a show of hands, what is your favorite sport? NBA, I think 85% of the students in the class, NBA is my favorite sport. So, is baseball concerned about that? and? With respect to speeding up the game, pace of play, do you see that as a response to this issue of an aging demographic?
1: Number one, the sport is definitely concerned. And just today they announced that they're going to let players wear different color cleats because, wow, we're making this great concession. So it appeals to the younger people. But they know there's a problem. I don't know that all of these older white males know how to fix the problem but they understand that they need to get a younger demographic. If you look at our median age of a viewer for a postseason game, it's in the 50s. And other sports, I'm sure, are much lower. Now, the other question that you asked, Mark, about pace of play and whether that affects it, I think the pace of action affects it. The fact that there's not enough action. I don't think three hours is unreasonable for a game. An NFL game takes three hours and nobody says a word. But when it's three hours or one team with 20 strikeouts, the other team with 10 strikeouts, 10 walks, and the ball's never in play. It's hard for me to watch, and I've been watching the sport my whole life, and I know it's hard for younger people to watch. Now that said, younger people do enjoy the sport in different kinds of ways. Fantasy, uh, on their phones, all kinds of different ways. So it's not a lost cause, but could the sport do better? There's not even a question about
2: that. So to go off of that, in the NBA especially we see superstars like LeBron James and Russell Westbrook usurping the sport itself and being involved in other ventures outside of basketball, whether it's fashion, movies, whatever it may be. A lot of the time baseball players are known to kind of stay within the sport. Do you yes. think there can be something said to getting them more involved outside of it? Ryan just
1: came up this year with Mike Trout, who is the best player. He's LeBron James of baseball. And should be appreciated as such and probably isn't, in part because he has a very low-key, modest personality, he's not that interested. And the commissioner around the All-Star game said something to the effect of, well, we'd like to do more with him because he doesn't want to do it. Part of that is the culture of the sport in which, unlike the NBA, it's not an individualistic sport. Even though the NBA is a team sport, we celebrate the individuals. Baseball beats down the individuals. That's kind of the culture of it. So, it's hard for certain players to step out. And when a guy like Harper shows a little bit of personality, it's like, oh my God, this guy's crazy. (laughs) No, he's just a different guy. So, I don't know how you change that. I think that is changing. I do think there's a greater appreciation now for personality slowly coming around. But you're right, everybody knows who LeBron is. Part of the reason is he wins championships. Chow hasn't done that. Harper's better known because Harper has a personality. And that is something that the sport definitely needs to address, but it, they can't force the players to do things. And the problem with what they said, what the commissioner said about Trout is, this guy is the shining light. He, he's the guy, and he's Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter was boring. Derek Jeter was not an exciting interview. He did some commercials. He wasn't way out there, like LeBron is and yet we liked him and he was great and people came to appreciate him. That kind of guy who
0: does everything right should be celebrated. Let's talk a little bit about about diversity in baseball. So the World Series, refreshingly, we had uh, the two managers in the World Series, um, a Latino manager and an (coughs) African-American manager. I don't think that's ever happened in the history of baseball. Has not. Um, Is that reflective... Uh, I should add that only 8% of major league players are African-American, which is, if not a historic low since Jackie Robinson in that era, then pretty close to it. So what is your assessment? How is baseball doing with respect to diversity? Depends how you
1: define diversity. If you define it as from other countries and around the world and all of that, sports are doing amazing. The Latino presence is incredible. Asian presence is strong the African-American presence has shrunk. And that's been something they've talked about addressing and they and tried to address mixed results, I would say. But they're trying now to get young African-American kids more involved. They're setting up programs where these kids have a chance to play. It's a difficult sport to play. Basketball, you go to the playground, you play two-on-two, three-on-three. Baseball, you need nine guys. It's in your field. It's not conducive, in many cases, to... Being enjoyed in the inner city. So they're trying. If you ask an average African American player if they're succeeding, I think he would say no. And I think he would express disappointment. In fact, I know he would. I've talked to enough players about this. So, from that perspective, should there be more? Sure. Would you want, and forget race, you want your best athletes playing your sport. I don't care what race, origin, nationality there are, you want those guys. So that is the challenge, and they need to do a better job. Now, the bigger question is really in the front offices and the manager seats. Are there enough? Well, I think there have been five managers hired this offseason, and if I'm not mistaken, only one is a minority. Um, I don't know where he's from. He's a bilingual a guy named Charlie Montelio from. He's with the Toronto Blue Jays. And actually, it was a surprise he was hired. He's kind of an older guy. and He'd been around, but now they're hiring these young guys. And you've got... And I've written about this, and I don't mind saying it. And I went to an Ivy League school like Mark, so I don't mind saying it. You've got a lot of Ivy League people working in this sport as general managers. Young, invariably white, and kind of all alike, homogenous. They're picking people who are similar to them. Not necessarily the same background as managers, but people they can work with. People who will implement their theories. This leads to a lack of minority hirings. And it's ridiculous in this sport that you don't have more Latino managers, in particular. And frankly, at some point, I think there will be Asian American managers, more so. The, the whole I think it will change, but boy, it's slow. And it goes back to the front offices. I believe we have one African-American general manager now. I don't know that there's any Latino general manager. If I'm missing somebody, forgive me. And to me, this is the problem. And if you want your sport to change, you have to welcome welcome in people that you haven't welcomed before and embrace people in a greater fashion than you have instead of sticking to the Ivy League model.
0: Thanks to Ken Rosenthal for visiting GW. By my count, there are 92 days until the opening of spring training.